Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the News Data Energy West podcast. I'm clearing up Dan Catchpole, joined here with my co-host, editor of California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. Jason, how are you doing today? Good morning, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. But you didn't answer my question. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I had a great weekend. I uh, went to a big April Fool's outdoor party with some really uh, fun people. It's a lot of parents from my school. But um, yeah, a guy that had been living there 42 years had some good stories about uh, rural uh, li- life in NorCal. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had this, yeah, had a giant bonfire and um, lit that thing up. And I did not know April Fool's parties were a thing. They are are with this group. Yeah. I feel like that's the thing you send out invites to, and then there's no party. That's the point. (laughs) Right. How do you know? This one's been going on for like 20 years or something. Real fun. You have some, a lot of unique people. I learned something. he told me at one of he was burning a fire and he threw a piece of plywood in it and there happened to be a state air board person driving by who saw the plywood and stopped and came up his driveway and said, you know, it's illegal to burn dimensional lumber in California and find him $250 for burning that piece of plywood. Wow, yeah. 250 They just do that. They just yeah. drive around and then when they see it, they just stop. And they can yeah. write. Well, I didn't know airboard quality, yeah. air quality board people could write tickets like that. It, it wasn't CARB. It was a pollution, um, oh. some pollution board. But yeah, and he didn't find them on the spot. But uh, yeah, it turns out in California, you cannot burn anything except natural wood. This is what I was told. I haven't verified this, folks. But um, apparently dimensional lumber, because it's treated, gives off chemicals. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Anyhow, yeah. So learn something this weekend. How was your weekend? Uh, it was good. It was quiet. It was pleasantly quiet. Um, nice. Kids had some sleepovers. Uh, you know, went to church. Uh, right. My son had his first soccer game of the season. They lost like twenty something to one, but he had fun. Ooh. Well, you know, he's, he's seven. I'm not sure yeah. why they even bother keeping score. And to be right. fair, he was playing against a um, the U12 na- national Brazilian team. So, no, wow. not really. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they were <laughs> playing against a bunch of other seven-year-olds who it was not their first game, apparently. Sounds uh, like it. But I, I, wow. somebody did send me a, a, a screenshot of a post they saw on uh, Instagram, wherever, where somebody was asking, said, what position is it when my son plays the whole game just looking for a four leaf clover. <laughs> yeah. The searcher. Yeah. The searcher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's about fun at that age. Yeah. Uh, no, it is. It is. And there's uh, my, he and my youngest, my uh, five-year-old daughter are starting um, little league and T-ball soon. So. All right. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. And you spend a lot of time watching some fun some fun games yeah, yeah i can't wait i can't wait for that my daughter's seven she's not on any team sports yet but she's raring to go yeah blessing and a curse because 
<laughs> Schedules get more complicated. Oh, yeah. But speaking of complicated topics, yep. I'm going to use that as my segue into um, nice. my, my top story for this week. Uh, top officials at five federal agencies say that the status quo is not working for managing all the competing interests in the federal Columbia River hydropower system. So the White House put up a recent blog post uh, on which these officials from five federal agencies said, we cannot continue business as usual. Doing the right thing for salmon, tribal nations, and communities can bring us together. So the post didn't lay out any specific policy changes, but it did seem to indicate that the Biden administration is open to rethinking how endangered salmon and steelhead are managed in the Columbia Basin and possibly even rethinking the future of the Lower Snake River dams, which are on a major tributary of the Columbia. Uh, there's a lot of people in the region, environmental advocates, uh, advocates for fish, some tribes who want to breach the dams, a lot of other mm -hmm. people, public power uh, advocates, navigation advocates, uh, irrigation, recreation, say, leave the dams in place. Very controversial issue. Uh, the federal agencies have been holding government-to-government uh, -government meetings with Columbia Basin tribes, or they did hold government-to-government -government meetings with Columbia Basin tribes on March 21st, where they heard support for breaching the four Lower Snake River dams, as well as requests to fully fund fish and wildlife re restoration and some, take some other steps on the uh, snake in Columbia. The White House Council on Environmental Quality has been meeting with environmental advocacy, advocacy groups, tribes, state and local governments and others since last fall, as Clearing Up recently reported, uh, to talk about the hydropower system's future management. And while this has been going on, a group of Republican lawmakers from the Northwest is pushing back and demanding uh, the White House go on record about what it's up to and what it, uh, you know, whether it wants to see or is considering changes to the current framework for managing the Columbia River Basin system. So uh, listeners, you can read more about this uh, at Clearing Up. And that's uh, the latest story is from my colleague, Casey Mahaffey, and she and I have been both been doing some coverage on this and certainly we'll be doing plenty more in the weeks and months to come. And uh, oh, just quick note, the five federal agencies, if anybody, for those playing along at home, as uh, the Interior Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, uh, Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, uh, and then someone from the Council on Environmental, or the, sorry, the Chair of the Council on Environmental Quality, Brenda Mallory, and Undersecretary of Commerce for Oceans and Atmosphere and NOAA Administrator, Richard Spinner, Spinred. All yeah. right. I know there and, can be a lot of passion around those dams. Yeah, to say the least. Uh, yeah, I mean, you drive around Seattle and I, I see every once in a while a um, sign calling for taking the dams out, dams that are yeah, hundreds of miles away from here. Yeah. And, you know, I heard one environmentalist that was at a hearing that was in DC. It was a dam issue. And you know, there were certain congressmen fiercely defending these dams. And he said, you know, dams are not monuments. They're, they're river management tools. But I think that there can be sort of an attachment that's, that's grown to them that might affect 
the issue. I don't know. Oh, that is a great way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, anytime you have a huge structure like that, it almost takes on some, I'm not sure what the right physical steep term for it, but like the momentum inertia, I forget what I'm trying to draw, harken back to my taking physics in high school. Uh, But it just takes on some life of its own just because it's such a huge structure. Um, Of course, these also are public powers so ingrained in the culture in the Northwest and in the economy. Um, Sure. But uh, the post concludes, by the way, with a request for uh, information from the public for anybody who wants to share it with the White House. Uh, You can send an email to salmon at ceq.eop.gov. So salmon at ceq.eop.gov. So Jason, what do you have for us? What's your top story this week? Well, this week in California energy markets, our lead story has to do with an audit by the California State Auditor uh, on wildfire management plans. Some kind of alarming findings from the state auditor. Uh, He was auditing the California Public Utilities Commission and also the Office of Energy Infrastructure Safety. And what he's looking at is their process for approving wildfire mitigation plans which are kind of, you know, an ongoing developing topic here in California. But what he said was the state needs to do a better job ensuring that utilities are prioritizing improvements to their power lines in high fire risk areas and really took uh, aim, the audit took aim at the uh, infrastructure safety offices process for approving wildfire mitigation plans saying it doesn't ensure the efforts are being made in the correct areas. Sort of the dynamic here um, was criticism of these two agencies from the auditor, but also Mm. acknowledging that it's a lot of this is the process, um, the way it was set up by the legislature, and not really the conduct of the agencies, which say they need more resources. But uh, I guess the safety office had identified significant concerns with 2020 wildfire mitigation plans of PG&E, Southern California Edison and SDG&E, but they still granted conditional approval of those plans. And the utilities were required to submit remedial plans but the OIES analysis of those plans was not a condition for their approval. Um, these safety certificates are required under AB 1054, which was the wildfire legislation passed here a few years ago. So yeah, I, clearly some more work needs to be done in the area of approving these plans. The CPUC said they largely agreed with the report, um, but did raise the issue of jurisdiction said the legislature is responsible for directing its updates to auditing procedures. So what does this mean for looking at at in the future? I mean, this, this won't affect wildfire mitigation plans this coming summer, right? No, these, uh, let me see. uh, These are the 2020. Yeah, they're looking backward at the 2020. Well, but right, but I mean, they're looking backwards to inform future wildfire plans. Yeah. 
So yes. how does this, um, how different are the wildfire mitigation plans for the upcoming season, summer, the upcoming wildfire season? How much do they differ from you know, last summers, two summers ago, what have you? Yeah, that's a great question. And the utilities actually said they've made some changes to improve the plan since then um, in some of their responses. So yeah, there, I think there will be improvements and the technology is improving. And the main issue being here, they're just saying that they're not inspecting in the right areas. So mm -hmm. it seems like a fairly simple problem to solve, but this is a fairly new thing here in California will require more refinement. Well, I mean, everywhere, obviously it's, it, it's a much more immediate, much bigger issue for California than it is for Northwestern states. But I mean, it's everywhere in the West, right? Is this oh, yeah. becoming a, an increasingly important issue? And it's something that I've been trying to get a better handle on in my reporting is um, utilities up here in the Northwest uh, update and tweak their wildfire mitigation plans. It, a lot of it seems very incremental um, mm -hmm. where you know there seems to be a somewhat of a disconnect between uh, the urgency with which climate scientists are saying how how rapidly how dramatically our understanding of what a normal wildfire season looks like is changing versus what wildfire how much wildfire mitigation plans are changing and i i'm not sure i'm trying to figure out like how much is that just my perception is it are they changing fast enough or is it just feel like, cause these are kind of two different processes, you know, talking about how we look mm. at future wildfire dangers versus, you know, a year to year wildfire mitigation plan. And there have been some big changes, especially up here with adopting public or uh, what is it? PSP I'm trying to remember what that stands for. PSPS. Public safety power shutoff, power shutoff. Yeah. Uh, which are completely new up here. You guys have had them for a while, but so, I mean, there are, those are, that's a, pretty big change but um at the same time it kind of feels like given how dramatic the future is supposed to be the changes that we're talking about it's really still using tools developed to fight to deal with wildfire seasons you know 20 years ago yeah it's definitely a ongoing process it's very complicated but you know utility industry not known for a rapid change in process but yeah definitely true that they're really focused on the number of miles that are inspected and that's one issue here rather than where the you know where those miles are and mm -hmm. i think they'll continue to refine um these inspections and how they're done and how how to fit plug climate change into the equation is, is something to think about it's I would have to think about it a little bit more, but I don't know how they're incorporating it into their planning. Yeah. But we know Let's it's going to be dry. I mean, they're planning for the worst, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure, especially this year where we got just, we had the driest January, February, March on record. Oof. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Well, and with that in mind, uh, Bonneville Power Administration is trying to better incorporate climate change realities into its long-term forecasting for hydropower generation. Uh, so it's trying to bring its forecasts better into better alignment with the futures 
future projections coming out of climate change models. So it's looking at tweaking its hydro generation forecast to reflect recent climate change trends and capture the anticipated ranges of uncertainty in the future. So uh, heretofore, the BPA has used a long data set of historical data to build its forecasts uh, of hydro generation. But as you know, as the future changes, the, the future looks increasingly, decreasingly looks like the past. It looks more and more different from you know, the past hundred years. So they're, uh, it's, you know, they're focused right now on just tweaking, tightening up the historic data they set. Uh, so if going from using a data set from 1939 to 2018 to reducing that down <laughs> to 1989 to 2018 yeah. to better capture uh, some of the current trends that we're experiencing right now, as well as some other methodological tweaks that you can read plenty more about that at uh, clearing up. But it is um, it is interesting to see how much this these changes are uh, you know really affecting how we think about and operate the system. And this will potentially have some financial impacts for public power customers of Bonneville, as well as just the larger you know, uh, effects on how the system is managed. So you can read more about that from uh, in a story by my colleague Rick Adair at Clearing Up. That was uh, reporting by Abigail Sawyer that I was just uh, summarizing. Oh, the wildfire! Yeah, sorry. Okay. So what else is up pending in the Northwest? Uh, well, so we speaking of uh, we'll we'll just stick with BPA for right now. Um, the Public Power Council came out with a white paper staking out a position on uh, it negotiations for power contracts for the post-2028 contracts. So Bonneville Public Power Association or Administration you know, has contracts with, I forget the number, 140-some public power customers uh, that they're 20-year contracts. They expire in 2028. So started having conversations about with customers um, a couple of years ago to kind of get the ball rolling about what the post-2028 contracts are going to look like. And so uh, Public Power Council came out citing some, stating some uh, yeah, uh, things that they'd like to see in it. Uh, it. One of the top ones was about just saying that they need to have, the final contracts need to have uh, durability with adaptable adaptable product services and terms uh, that allow BPA customers to meet their needs as they evolve over time. And that is really one of the things that I've heard time and time again from uh, officials at um, BPA utilities or officials at utilities that are BPA customers is just, yeah, we don't really know. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future ahead and uh, the contracts need to allow flexibility to deal with that. Uh, this story is from also from Rick Adair, and you can read more about that and also just more about the 2028 contracts in the coming years uh, at clearing up. So Jason, what else do you have All for right. us from California? Okay, I have another story from Abigail this week. Uh, it has to do with Diablo Canyon. The uh, 
Inspector General's Office for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission recently did an inquiry into an incident in July 20, 2020, that is, uh, there was a failure in the auxiliary system, which required one of the plant's reactors to be shut down for eight days. Mm. Um, the OIG found some faults with the inspection process, which I'll get into in a second. But what happened in July 20, uh, July 2020, a plant operator noticed water coming from an area associated with a feed water system. Uh, the plant was not producing electricity at the time because uh, this is interesting because there was another problem going on. <clears throat> uh, they ended up repairing the, the pipe, but uh, the OIG, the inspector general that looked into this, revealed that NRC inspectors had overlooked the area where the leak occurred, even though their inspection report said they'd conducted a complete walk down of the system three months That's prior to the discovery of the leak. Oh. Uh, they just, the inspectors failed to identify piping insulation to the system that had been in degraded condition. Uh, they also found that NRC inspectors spent fewer than five hours directly inspecting the two reactors at Diablo Canyon. In April 2020, the recommended time for such an inspection based on NRC procedures is 12 hours. Uh, so, yeah, um, and NRC did end up issuing a notice of violation to PG&E for failure to appropriately screen relevant operating experience. So it looks like in this one, there's sort of a shared responsibility from the utility and NRC uh, but yeah, a little bit of um, bad news about Di Diablo Canyon, which we know is scheduled to shut down in a couple of years or three years, 24, 25. So that's uh, some news from Diablo Canyon. Yeah, you know, that's actually a great segue for uh, the last story that I was going to highlight here from the Northwest. Uh, so, you know, just as those older uh, nuclear facilities are, are starting to hit the end of their life cycle. Uh, small modular nuclear, a lot of talk about that. A lot of uh, folks are hoping that can provide, help us transition to a system that is heavily reliant on intermittent renewable resources. Among those exploring that is Pacific Core, the one of the largest utilities in the West. So in there, in Pacific Core's latest integrated resource plan, which is just uh, for people who aren't who don't have the pleasure of being seeped in the um, intricacies of utility regulation to know about integrated resource plans. So it's basically a long-term plan that utilities have to come up with every few years, uh, laying out essentially how what's their demand and how they're going to meet it. That's a really, a really mm -hmm. short yeah. version of what that is. Uh, Good summary. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, and so in their latest integrated resource plan that they submitted to the Oregon, to Oregon regulators, they included a 4 billion project uh, for a small modular nuclear reactor uh, that they'd like to procure in 2028. Uh, the Oregon PUC signed off on the IRP, recognized, or they acknowledged it and said, hey, this all seems like a, a well-thought-out plan, but not so excited about the small modular reactor. They think it's too mm -hmm. early to, uh, they 
to include as a key proponent of a long-term plan, but they did uh, encourage Pacific Core to continue looking into it. Now, uh, approval of an IRP, one of these resource plans, that is not the same as approving a utility spending money. So I just want to make sure listeners understand mm-hmm. that. This is just saying, you did a good plan. This makes sense for a 20-year view. That is very different from them saying, yes, you can charge rate, uh, you know, you can charge customers uh, to pay for this plant that you just built. So very, but clearly the long-term plan informs the projects that utilities actually go, go forward with. So Oregon regulators said, yep, keep looking into it, but uh, it's too soon to actually include it in a long-term plan. So you can read more about that from uh, in that story by my colleague, Steve Ernst at Clearing Up. Jason, you have anything else for us from uh, the Golden State? Yeah, one, um, my bottom lines this week, I tackled the, the gasoline tax and transportation, a little bit of a ancillary topic here at CEM, but it, we're increasingly writing about transportation with electric vehicles and uh, gas taxes. Uh, or gas, the price of gas being super high in California right now, as everybody knows, above $6 a gallon. Wow. Um, yeah, I've got a picture on my column of my latest fill up of 16.9 gallons, and it was an even 100 bucks. So, a big topic. Uh, I'll just get through this briefly, but uh, we had a very interesting hearing of the Transportation Committee, the State Transportation Committee at the legislature. Uh, last week, where Kevin Kiley introduced a bill to get rid of the gas tax, which, um, let me see, I think is, yes, yeah, 51 cents a gallon. So 50, that's just one tax we pay, but 51 cents a gallon, he put in a bill to uh, suspend that temporarily. Uh, there's a Democrat majority on this committee, and what they did was the first thing they did was offer an amendment to strip the entire bill and replace it with a tax on gasoline. Uh, Now, I had some fudginess about how this is structured. Uh, According to the verbal version of the amendments, it would be a tax on oil companies. I saw something in the legislation itself about a tax per gallon on gasoline. Anyhow, just to wrap that up, it was very uh, contentious hearing once the Republicans saw that instead of their tax being reduced, the bill would be stripped and a tax put in its place. Kevin Kiley said, this is your government folks right here. Absolutely disgraceful. Uh, Assemblyman Lori Davies, Davies, also Republican from Aliso Viejo, said, I'm disgusted by this process, et cetera. Safe to say they were not happy. Uh, so now the bill with Kylie's name is moving forward with the tax instead of suspending the tax. But uh, the committee chair, um, her name is Laura Friedman, a Democrat from San, Ver- San Fernando, said, I'm appalled and shocked that you are so appalled and shocked. She said, we often suggest other suggestions in committee. We know we could just vote it down, but we're trying to help here. Um, Gas tax has been suspended in other states, including Connecticut, Georgia, and Maryland. So, yeah, legislation moving forward. Uh, looks like the gas tax will not be suspended in California anytime soon. 
I did not realize gas was so expensive in California. I thought it was bad when I filled up here. Um, yeah, it's 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 really high right now. I the highest I've paid so far is six nineteen, and it's hitting seven dollars um, in LA. And you know they're blaming Ukraine and Russia a little bit for this, but these prices are unique to California. Yeah. We, yeah. And we also have this hidden <laughs> hidden surcharge, they call it, where nobody can figure out why gas prices are so high. It's, uh, it's becoming a big political issue here. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Hopefully it will get some, you know, it's been high before and come down. There's a lot of different factors at play. But, uh, you know, maybe this will push people towards EVs. But I think that remains yeah. to be seen. Well, and listeners, you can stay tuned here and uh, read us online to, to follow coverage of that shift to electric vehicles uh, oh, yeah. in the future. We'll be covering We have been covering it and we'll continue to cover it, uh, among other topics. So that's all I have from the Northwest. Uh, Jason, do you want to add anything? Nope. Uh, nope. We're good here in NorCal. We had fun with our April Fool's issue. Speaking of small modular, we ran a piece that the CPUC was had done away with rooftop solar because it was too complicated and was instead going to require <laughs> SMR on every rooftop. And uh, we actually fooled a couple of people with our April Fools this year. A couple weren't happy about it. But what are you going to do? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good one. I like that small rooftop, small modular nuclear. That's yeah, fantastic. I wish I thought of know. that one. Yeah, that was. Uh, I think that was Abigail again. She's our most creative April Fool's writer. But that's about it here from CEM. All right, great. Well, uh, you can find us online at uh, newsdata.com. You can find Clearing Up and California Energy Markets. You can follow us on Twitter at CU News Data and at CEM News Data. And keep tuning, tuning in right here to hear the latest on what we're covering. Otherwise, uh, I think that's it for today. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you all next week. Okay. Talk to you later. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Tomorrow.